Well, we're now entering the, the second half of our series in the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul is really telling us a little bit more about what we should believe, especially in regards to the gospel, right? What do we believe about our salvation? How is a person to be saved? We spent the first three chapters looking at that. Now, Paul is going to shift in the second part, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and is going to tell us how we should live in light of experiencing the gospel in our lives in such a powerful way. And so he's beginning chapters 4 as he makes this transition. He's going to ask an important question. And the question simply is this, is who are you imitating with your life? Who is the biggest influence in your life, and where do you model your life after? As I was thinking about that, as I was growing up as a young child, uh, my biggest influencers, uh, especially in the world of sports, my favorite basketball player of all time is Julius Irving, Dr. J. Some of you may remember the doctor back in the day. And so here's a little picture back from my uh, younger years. And uh, you can see the influence of the doctor. High white socks, red, white, and blue, rocking my canvas converse as only the doctor could. The ball, if you can see, it was actually an ABA red, white, and blue ball, silky shorts. I'm confused a little bit by the knee pads. I don't know if I was playing volleyball after this or what, but if you remember the doctor, he had two knee pads all the time in the ABA days. And so what a glorious, frightful picture that is. But do you remember when the doctor came? I mean, the doctor brought style to basketball. It wasn't just about playing the game. It was about having some flair and the finger roll. Him and George Gervin changed everything. So as a young child, that was my man. High school came, and I got rid of the silky short shorts, went to the long baggies, because a man named Michael Jordan, you remember that, came onto the scene, dramatically changed everything. I began to try to imitate all I could and be like Mike as we go. Lots of people. My hair, picture this if you would. I, I tried to part it down the middle and do the feather like David Cassidy. Some of you girls and ladies, you remember this? You had the David Cassidy posters in your room back in those days. Uh, David Cassidy, the Fonz, right? And no matter how hard I tried to look like these guys, I had a bad calic, and I always ended up looking like Richie Cunningham. So, you know, and I used to complain about that. Now I look back and say, oh, if I only had a Richie Cunningham hair day, uh, it would be a good thing as we go. But those were kind of the influencers that really changed how I thought and things, people that I wanted to emulate my life after. You know, today it's a little bit different. Today's influencers through social media have even greater impact not only on what we wear and how high we wear our socks, but they have impact on how we think and how we're influenced. And so as you think about that, here's a question. Do you know who the top influencers are in 2021? Interesting. Here, let me give you the top 10 influencers. Number one is Ronaldo the incredible soccer player for Portuguese. Uh, if you're a soccer fan, you know today, big soccer match is going to be a great one. But Ronaldo has 406 million followers between Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 406 million people follow him around the world. Want to guess who number two is? The Beeb. That's right, Justin Bieber. 362 million followers. A great talent, amazingly creative. I hear he likes peaches. Uh, but as you look at the, Justin, remember, my heart always breaks from him because you, you look at a young man who is conflicted about what faith and God and in his life and not in his life, and your heart goes out for that. Number three, any guesses who it is? Taylor Swift. Swifty, 316 million followers as she gives relationship advice through songs. Uh, what a great deal that is. Let me give you the other ones real quick. Ariana Grande's number four. Selena Gomez, number six. Katy Perry, number seven. Kim Kardashian, 
Number eight, Beyonce. Number nine, Felix Shelberg. Many of them, you may know him by uh, PewDiePie, the Swedish gamer. He's got his game chance. Seven of you know who PewDiePie is. Away we go. Uh, Felix is there. And number 10 is Kylie Jenner. Now, if you have no idea who half these people are, uh, and you're over the age of 40, just ask some younger folks. They'll cue you in. A uh, young man came to me after last service. He's like, PewDiePie, man. He was like, he was gaming. He had all the good stuff. It was great. But think about these 10 influencers. They impact 2.7 billion people around our world every week. And they enter into the hearts and the minds, not only of our young people, but even in our culture and all this, every time we open up our, our phone. And they share with us their values, right? Their morality, their political leanings, their spiritual views with over 2 billion people on a regular basis. And as I look at that list and think, if these are the influencers of our world, it's no wonder we're struggling for a moral compass, right, on, on where we should be. If we're not careful, we're going to do what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says what's going to happen in our culture, you're going to become hopeless and confused. And you know, if I could think of a title for 2021 for our world and our country at times, would it not be hopeless and confused? The Apostle Paul is going to say that happens when we determine who we imitate and who influences us. So that's where we're going to look this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would, turn me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. If you've got your phones, go to lexcity.info. All the sermon notes are on there. I've got a couple links for you today that you'll want to hit from there so you can head there as we go. But Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 17, says this. With the Lord's authority, I say this. So the Apostle Paul is going to say, listen, this isn't my opinion. I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord. This is the Lord's authority. Here's what he says. Live no longer as Gentiles do, for they are hopeless and confused. So a little side note. So whenever the Apostle Paul uses this, this term Gentiles, he's referring to anyone who doesn't know God. And it's kind of a carryover term from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word Gentile referred to anybody who was outside of the saving covenant that God had with the nation of Israel, though they were called Gentiles. So Paul's going to keep this thought, kind of this carryover term when he thinks of Gentiles, anybody who doesn't have a saving knowledge of who God is. And so he begins to remind us, this young church in Ephesus, and to remind us, listen, we all were Gentiles. There was once a point, if you know God, that you didn't know God. And he says, I want you to be reminded about how you acted and how you thought. This is your BC story, right? BC, before Christ's story that you have. How did you think and how did you act and how different it was? And Paul's going to say this, if you want to grow in godliness, then this is what you've got to begin with. You've got to stop trying to imitate the world. You've got to stop trying to live like the Gentiles do. Stop trying to see how much in your Christian liberty, right, how close we can get, how much we can look and sound and act like the world without really being in the world. <clears throat> he says this is a difference. Because the challenge is these two worldviews, he says, are incompatible. They're like light and, and darkness, and the challenge we have, especially in 2021, right, in our Christian liberty and our freedoms, we, 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 we want to blend these things as close as we can get without compromising on these two. And Paul says, boy, that's a recipe for disaster. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 18. He says, this is what people do. That. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they close their minds in the hardness of their hearts against him. Paul just says, listen, you're in the condition you are from a personal choice. He says, take some responsibility for this, right? You, they have closed their minds. They have chosen to harden their hearts. And goes on to verse 19. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. 
Now think about this. He says the challenge of the culture right now is you have no shame about where you're at. <laughs> Put it in our, in our context even today, right? We have no shame in our redefining of what sexual integrity is about. We confuse gender. We progressively follow the lust of our flesh. And when I say that idea that we progressively follow, can I just remind you this, that, that our culture is not done moving the bar of morality. We tend to think, oh, it's going to get here, and then it's because it's progressive. It's going to continue to move. Sin is progressive. Why? Two things. It's fueled by the prince of darkness, and secondly, it's fueled by our own depravity. We wrestle today, right, not against flesh and blood, not against a political ideology. We wrestle against the forces of darkness, and we wrestle against the depravity that lives within our very own heart. And so it is this progressive. That's why in verse 1, he says of a culture like this that we are hopeless. What does he say? And that we are confused as we go. Again, I think it's such a timely word thousands of years later. If you look at our culture today, hopeless and confused. And I say that and I start with that because I think if we're not careful, sometimes we begin to think, I think about our culture, we begin to think this, that somehow we're going to come to a moral center. We're going to figure this out just a little bit of time uh, all on our own, that in our own goodness of man, that we'll eventually self-right ourselves. But can I just remind you, Paul teaches it so clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, that boy, that is not what the Bible teaches that we have no sense of shame, that we practice every kind of impurity, that the answer is not found within us, the answer is not found in any political system or social movement. In, in 2021, we have never possessed more greater knowledge and had less wisdom. And we might even say less common sense. It's really what the 1800s uh, historian Thurow, when he wrote, wrote it this way beautifully, he says this, we have improved means to an unimproved ends. In other words, we're getting smarter and yet we're getting more foolish. We have improved means, but the end result is not that. Romans tells us that. In Romans chapter 1, verse 22, it says, professing themselves to be wise, what they became fools. So with that kind of a background, the question really is, is how does God desire us to live, right? How do we combat the challenges we face every day? Well, Ephesians 4 says this. Paul's going to say to this young church in Ephesus, you're going to begin by this. I need you to stop trying to imitate the things of this world. Why? And I just wrote it this way, right? The morality bar is ever moving. And today's liberty is tomorrow's compromises. See, my fear is we just keep moving down the road. I've got liberty here, but by tomorrow we compromise over and over. If you want to stay in step with the world, here's the challenge. You will eventually be walking in sin. That's, that's what Paul tells us. What makes this hard, isn't it? In all of us, I so want my coworkers, I, I, you want your classmates, you want your old college buddies to accept you and to be part of them. But here's the problem. At some point in that relationship, you are eventually going to move to a conflict of values. If you never reach a conflict with values in those circles, then one or two things are happening. Either, number one, you are with the most moral, non-church people I've ever met in my life, or number two, which is probably more likely, we've just become comfortable with compromise and sin. At some point, the reality is there's going to be a tension that was there. I, I, I was thinking about that. In, in my younger days, I used to play a, a lot of softball, and, and uh, one of the competitive teams I played with were from, uh, buddies of mine from the warehouse where we worked, and... Um, and we were sponsored by a local bar. And so part of the deal was, listen, they would sponsor our team, but afterwards, uh, you'd have to come to the bar for, for free drinks. 
So after the game, we'd go. Now, I don't drink. I've never drank, so I just was Diet Coke boy uh, that was there. But this was the, the context that we had. And I would stay about 30 minutes uh, each time just to hang out with the guys a little bit, and then I exit. Because here's what I quickly found. About a half hour into the process, and a few pitchers of free beer later, the dynamic of the group dramatically changed. <laughs> and all of a sudden, as much as I wanted to be accepted and be part of the guys... I was reminded this, first and foremost, I'm a child of the king. And about 30 moments, 30 minutes into this process, the child of the king did not need to be there and during those times. And the fear was, and you've, you've experienced this, the fear was if I leave, are they gonna reject me? I'm so honored that they would invite me to come play on their team, you know, and all these kind of fears that became. But a crazy thing happened. The more I did that, the more I actually gained respect in them. Why? Because there was a consistency of my life that was before. And some of you model this so well, and you do it in your own life, right? They love this idea of this, listen, I didn't judge, but I didn't compromise. It's kind of the old saying, right? I always say, judge the believing, not the heathen. See, if this was a church softball team, we'd have a different conversation, but it wasn't along those deals. And so it worked out well. So this idea of this, listen, I come, I accept without compromising, and over time, the consistency of that really worked in my favor more the other way. It's a valuable lesson learned as a young man. Even today, I think about uh, Tammy in our life, try to keep that same principle, and some of you, again, model this so well for us. As you know, we like to ride motorcycles a lot, and so we're in a different groups of motorcycle groups that are there. And um, listen, I am reminded when I spend time with certain groups, they don't need for me, they don't need another drinking buddy or another person who just has some off-color jokes, uh, another person who just talks badly about their spouse. Listen, they have tons of friends that way. It's a dime a dozen. They don't need me to be that within the group. But if you can be a God-honoring person who accepts people, right, who actually asks more questions than tells stories about yourself, who honors your spouse in the midst of this, listen, you'll be a unicorn, in the context of these things. And that's some of you, you know exactly, you do this amazingly well. You, you are such an oddball in your, in your spheres of influence, why? Because you, there's something uniquely different about you that you go, you're so countercultural. And when you live differently in the context of a culture, you stand out in an amazing way. The key is this though, is it not? The key is that we live uniquely different than our culture. Because if we don't live any different, then all we do is further the narrative that they already have about the hypocrisy of the church and the hypocrisy of Christians. So Paul says, listen, your, your, your life matters, your testimony matters, that you and I are an, a moral anchor that keeps our culture and our spheres of influence from drifting even farther away from the things of God. So he says to this young church, and he would say to us today, it matters. It matters what you do, and it matters how you live. So Paul's gonna share with this, again, this same principle that we're gonna talk about today. He's gonna share it with this young church in the city of Ephesus. And if you remember from week one, the context of the city of Ephesus, one of the seventh wonders of the world was there. It was the temple of Artemis, the goddess of reproduction. So you can imagine the sexual depravity that went around with this. In the city of Ephesus, two of the, the biggest industries financially were idol building and, pro, and temple prostitution. In the city of Ephesus, if you said, who are the 10 influencers of this culture? Most of them, would, I'm sure, would be not God-honoring people. So Paul starts in chapter 4 with the same question for the young churches. I think the challenge and the question would be for you and I today is this. Who are you imitating? Who are you imitating? Who's the influencer of your life? Ephesians 4 says this, that the beauty of God 
is on display through Jesus. Paul's going to say, I'm going to tell you who you're in, you, the person that's the influence. It's got to be Jesus. In 2021, we might say this, that Jesus is God's Instagram account, right? Jesus is the best of who God is, and we get to see it on a daily basis. What a powerful thing that it is. That the life of Jesus is the thing that's going to inspire us, to help us to think differently and, differ, and, and live differently. And the, more, and the more that you know about who Jesus is, Paul's going to say, the more you're going to love this guy. The more you know about the heart of Jesus, the more you're going to love Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 and 21 says it this way. But that isn't what you learned about Christ, right? Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. He's saying, listen, you need to remember the stories of who Jesus was. That's where the power lies, the inspiration. That the study of the life of Jesus, there, as you think about that, there's so many things that are inspiring. I, I look in my life. There's so many things as I look about the life of Jesus that inspire me to be a better person, a better man, a better husband, a better father, a better friend, a better coworker. As I think about the life of Jesus, just from his stories, let me give you a quick little 13 things that stick out to me, and there's so many more. And I've got all these in the sermon notes under lexcity.info. And if you're even looking for a devotion this week, it might be worth just looking up some of these passages. These 13 things that I love about who Jesus is that inspire me. That he's patient, and he gives grace to those who criticize him. That he always goes beyond, right, Matthew 5, always goes beyond what is required. This is what is expected, and Jesus goes beyond. That he says this, that he says, to be a person of your word, so choose your words wisely. Say less, but mean what you say. I love that. Uh, you look at others. And how you look at others is a reflection about how you look at yourself, Matthew 7. For all my fellow people pleasers, you cannot please everyone. Move on, <laughs> Matthew 10. Whatever you're feeling, this is so great, whatever you're feeling, spend time in isolation. Whenever your heart is turmoil and things, don't deny those feelings. Take time and be alone with those feelings and let God meet you in there. Pay attention to what you're feeling, all right, and value that time. Be persistent and have some grit, all right? I love that, Luke 11. Jesus just reminds us there are times you just gotta keep going on. Put on your big boy pants, get a little grit about you. Clench up and make it happen, you know? There's just these moments that it takes there. Pruning hurts, but it's important to your growth. Whatever you spend your money on is what you truly value, Matthew 6. Stop worrying and live for today. If you want to be great, then you better learn to serve. And I love this last one. At the end of the day, it's all about love. I mean, these are the things that you see out of the life of Jesus. <laughs> these are the things that, that we love about Jesus. I, I love this, that Jesus was always busy, but he was never in a hurry. You ever notice that? He's not running anywhere. He's always got someplace to go, but he always had time. He was very kind, and yet he was courageous. Jesus was meek. But he was the baddest dude in the room every time he entered in. He was God, and yet he was fully man. And Paul says, this is why you've got to learn the stories of Jesus. Because when you get to know him, you're going to get to love him. Parents, can I just say to you, this is why you need to have your kids in church every week. 
that they can get to learn the stories of Jesus. That's why you need to have your students in youth group every week, that they could be influenced by that rather than TikTok into celebrities on Instagram. Let Jesus be one of the big influencers in their life. That's why for you and I, right, we, we've got to spend time personally just in the word and just time with the Lord. When you're time with the Lord and we spend time learning about who Jesus is, it helps us to discern, right, what is truth and what is counterfeit. When you learn more about the life of Jesus, it just brings clarity to sometimes the confusing world that we live in. Lots of ways to do that. Let me just share with you one. One fun way that I've learned and I've enjoyed over the time, there's a little book called The Life of Jesus, and I put the link uh, in your uh, Lexity notes. And what this is, is a chronological uh, it's all the Gospels harmonized in chronological order. So it goes from the beginning of his life all the way through and puts all the Gospels together. It's just another fun way to kind of learn and learn more about who Jesus is. But Paul says this is so important, right? Ephesians 4.21, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. So he says again, I want you to hear and I want you to learn the things about Jesus, not just so you grow in intellectual knowledge, but that your heart is transformed. That there's stories that transform you. And how does it transform you? Go on to verse 23. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Paul says the goal at the end of the day is not behavior modification. He's not trying. It's heart transformation. I, I love the way Pastor J.D. Greer says it when he says this. When the Spirit of God uses the stories of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. Isn't that great? That's what Paul's saying. When the Spirit of God uses the stories of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts, there's transformation. So Paul says, that's where we're gonna begin. We're talking about heart transformation. I'm gonna spend the first three chapters, I wanna remind you of these important things, that God loves you before the foundation of the earth. That God had a plan for you. That God chose you before the beginning of time. That God went to the cross and died on your behalf that you might experience salvation and forgiveness of sin. That your salvation is guaranteed not upon your actions, but on the character of God. Paul says, I want you to understand all of these things first. And now that you understand that, here's where we grow again. He says, I'm gonna call you to a moral behavior and a moral change in your life. And that's where chapter four goes, as he goes. So now Paul's gonna give us, just a little bit today, he's gonna give us some test cases, some ways, some indicators of how we're doing and having our heart transformed. We're gonna have a couple of them today. Next week, Pastor Dave's gonna give you a little more ex extensive list on ways that Paul says we can do that. But here's where we're gonna go. So let me give you a little bit of list. That Paul says, these are some things I want you to check your heart on. And let me just tell you up front, these are doozies. They aren't easy. Here's where we go. He jumps right into it. I love Paul. Straightforward. Verse 32. Instead, says, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, and here's the key, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. When Jesus says this, as he talks about this area of forgiveness, he doesn't command you, he says, just to forgive. I, I need you to go through the action of forgiving. He says, listen, I want you to remember the story. I want you to remember how much God has forgiven you and let that motivate your forgiveness. And when we can remember how much God has forgiven us, this is what changes. It changes forgiveness from being a cumbersome command that I have to do to being a response of gratitude for what God has done for me. Big difference. One, I just, yeah, just grit, I've got to do it. The other one's a response. Jesus knows we're going to struggle with this. And so he, he, there's a group of people that are following him. Jesus says, let me share you a story that may help illustrate this a little bit better. He says, I want to share a story that's going to remind you this, that your forgiveness to others is rooted 
Not out of obligation or guilt, but it's rooted out of gratitude. So in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus shares a story. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And I love Peter, because Peter's like us. Like, I'd like to know how many times, because I don't want to do more than I have to. <laughs> and if I only got to do seven, I'm only going to do seven. I want to do eight, right? I want to get this thing. I want to check the mark so I know where I sit. Here's what Jesus says. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times 70. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. So he tells a story. In the process, one of the debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Actually, the word in the original is the largest dollar amount that there's language for. So millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owed to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him and said, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then the master was filled with pity for him and he released him and he forgave his debt. Okay, so you get the context that's starting. The king forgave a debt that was so large to the servant that there was no way in his lifetime he could ever pay it back. Paul's saying, be reminded this is what the gospel is, right? That we've been forgiven a debt that we could never pay back. This man who walks before the king is doomed for punishment and slavery for himself, his family, and all of his children because of a poor choice that he had chosen to make that has condemned him. But to the amazement that all who are watching at this time, the king forgives this man's eternal debt. The story goes on in verse 28. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. In the language, it's actually one month's worth of pay. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay you, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. The crowd's hearing the story that Jesus is sharing and you can imagine there's this murmuring that begins to go like, what a jerk. Can you believe it? He was forgiven everything, and now he's not even going to let a minor offense go. Man, what's wrong with him? Why can't he be thankful? Can you imagine? And I can just imagine Jesus smiling like, oh, you're, you're getting the story. I'm glad you're struggling with this. Verse 31, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset, and they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man who had for, that he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? See, the challenge with the first servant, as we see, is this, that he hadn't let the depth of forgiveness that he had experienced truly transform him. He was just happy to be off the hook. I, I owed this amount that I could never pay. I'm, I'm just so grateful that I don't owe it anymore. There was no humility there was no repentance for what had put him in that position in the first place. There was no heart transformation. And so when an offense hits him, all of a sudden he lashes out with anger and forgets what he has been forgiven. It's easy to hear the story and say, well, yeah, that makes sense. But, but think about us in our own situations, right? When there's hurts in our life that are really hard to forgive, I don't know about you, whenever I'm hurt, I just, I'd really like to extract my pound of flesh, right? I want to return a hurt with a greater hurt. I just want to be vindicated. And honestly, I just want everybody to know I'm right and they were wrong. 
If that would happen, I would be fine. You know, this is how so many times where our heart goes. And in those moments, Ephesians 4 says, when your heart is in conflict, when that hurt is rising up within you so great, you need to be reminded about Jesus. You need to be reminded how Jesus responded. What did he do when he was insulted and betrayed? How did he respond? Or how did he not respond in those moments? I need to be reminded in those moments when I feel this need to interject vengeance and right all that is wrong, right? I need to be reminded about how I have responded to God in the first place. We say things like, and we sing things, God, I, I really love you. And yet I know in my life, at times, I willingly sin against him. We say things like, God, I'm, I'm so devoted to you, right? And yet we struggle to make God a priority in our time during our week. And on and on we go. Here's the point that I think Paul wants to remind us, and I'm reminded of this, that I have fallen short in my relationship with God far more often and at a far greater level than other people have fallen short in their relationship with me. See, I've left the king's court fully forgiven, and now I've ran into that person. You know it. That person that's broken your heart, that person that slandered you on social media, that person that has stolen from you, that person who owes you something, and the question is, what do I do in that moment, and why do I do what I'm about to do? How does the story change the story of Jesus changed how I need to respond to that person. See, it's not just forgiveness. It's an indicator where my heart is and how much God has transformed my heart. Does that make sense? The moment I see that person or that situation and all of that rises up in me, I'm reminded that God has more work to do in my heart to be more like him. Paul says, you're gonna get there by just be encouraged, be reminded again of the story of Jesus and what he's done. It's not gonna become a cumbersome command. It's gotta be a response out of gratitude because I can let you off the hook because God let me off the hook. I, I can choose to want blessing on your life because God chose to bring blessing uh, onto my life as it goes. And so Paul goes on to say, that's one of them, <laughs> that's a big one, he says, but let me just give you a few more indicators of how the story of Jesus has transformed your heart. And so he says, let me give you a checklist. This will be a heart checklist. Now, I remind you, this is a checklist for you and not the person sitting next to you, all right? So as I read through these, these are just for you and for me in these moments. But here's what Paul says. Verse 24, he says, put on a new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. In other words... This is the new you, right? In light of who Jesus is in your life, it's gotta be something different. So he goes on in verse 25. He says, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all part of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you, but let the sun go down, and don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. He says, where's your heart on this area of anger? Does it rise up in you so quickly? Does it come out in outburst? God says, man, there's a beauty of learning to be angry and sinning not. So 
when you allow your anger to have a foothold in your heart, then you're allowing the enemy to have a foothold in your life. So he says, work on that. Verse 28, if you're a thief, quit stealing. That seems like a good one. Just don't do that, all right? Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to those in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Listen, you want to stand out in your culture? You want to stand out from your community of influence? You want to be a unicorn? Then simply this, watch the words that you say, right? Be an encourager. Don't allow foul language to identify you as we go. He goes on to say this, and don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you be saved on the day of redemption. It says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. In verse 32, finally he says this, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. See, it's the beauty of the story of Jesus, right? The story of Jesus inspires us to change. That Jesus really is, isn't, he's the ultimate influencer. He's the ultimate one to be imitated. He is the story that should be told and the example that should be followed in our lives. So Ephesians 4 simply says this, will you fall in love with Jesus one more time? Will you be reminded that he is your champion and that he is your defender?